Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. It's a delight this morning to be able to introduce uh, Dr. Stephen Ewell. He will be speaking this morning from Philippians chapter 3. Please open your Bible to um, that portion of Scripture. Dr. Ewell uh, used to live here in Cambridge about a year ago. They moved back down to uh, Texas, um, where he is a professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And more recently, he has been pastoring again a revitalization work that uh, sprung up by the providence of God, was brought to his attention, and uh, we praise God that uh, he's in the pulpit there every week, and so brother, come and uh, open the word of God to us at this pulpit. Thanks for coming. Let's welcome him together. Thanks, Caleb. Well, good morning, Hespler Baptist Church, our home away from home, many fond memories, sitting in this auditorium with 40 other masked individuals <laughs> looking like we were ready to hold up a stagecoach. <laughs> we're gathered with a privileged 10 or 12 in the fellowship hall as Brian Vautour read through the entire epistle to the Ephesians or baking in the hot sun in the parking lot of Heritage as we gathered on a Sunday morning. Good times. <laughs> it seems like so long ago now, doesn't it? But it is good to be back among God's people here at Hessler Baptist Church. If you've not found the book of Philippians, I invite you now to turn there with me. Philippians chapter 3, and our text this morning focuses on verses 7 through 11. Uh, recently, I was speaking with a preacher who remarked that there was a time in Scotland going back two or three centuries a time when just about every pulpit had a little brass plaque tacked, fixed to it, right here where the preacher could see it, with the simple statement, Sir, we would see Jesus lifted straight out of John chapter 12. The Lord Jesus was in the city of Jerusalem celebrating the Passover, and some individuals approached one of His disciples, Philip, with that statement, sir, we would see Jesus. And there was a time where it was right there on the pulpit, those, that simple statement, sir, we would see Jesus, a powerful reminder to the preacher to stay on topic. You're there for only one reason, man. You're not a politician. You're not a storyteller. You're not a spiritual guru. You are not there simply to gather people to entertain them. You are there with one very simple purpose for one very straightforward reason. Look, there is the Lord Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. I've been thinking about it a lot of late and wrestling with exactly what does that mean. What does it mean to see Jesus? Look, as Christians, a day is coming. We will see Him. We call that the beatific vision. It is the hope of glory. 
that day in which we will behold, we will see the glory of God in the face of Christ. But right now, when we utter that simple prayer, when we state the, that, those simple words, Sir, we would see Jesus. What does it mean? We could go to many places in Scripture to answer the question. This morning, we're turning our attention to Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to see that in these verses, Paul answers that, that question very simply. It is simply this. Let me give you it right at the outset. To see Jesus, firstly, is to gain Jesus. You got it? To see Jesus, secondly, is to know Jesus. To see Him is to gain Him. To see Him is to know Him. That leads to two more obvious questions. Well, what does it mean to gain Him? What does it mean to know Him? And now to our text, we turn as we try to answer these questions, wrestle through these truths, all with this great goal, objective desire before us this day, that indeed we might see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so follow along as I read in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so again, firstly, to see Jesus is to gain Jesus. What does it mean to gain Jesus? The answer is threefold. Number one, to gain Jesus is to look upon all that I was as dung. Yes, I just used that word from the pulpit because Paul uses that word in our text. It's translated in the ESV, rubbish. It literally refers to dung, the entrails of an animal, that which is worthless, that which we just simply throw out, that which disgusts us. To gain Jesus is to look upon all that I was as dung. Where do we get that from? Verse 7, whatever gain I had, says Paul, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What gain is he referring to? He tells us, go all the way back to verse 4, the middle of it, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And now he gives us this description of himself. And here Paul lays his soul bare and he basically tells us, look, take a close look at me. This is who I was. This is what I was all about, my identity before God, my self-perception before God, how I saw myself before God, my entire identity wrapped up in two things. Firstly, my ethnicity, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Jew, my entire identity. And there was my self-worth before God. And not just my ethnicity, but my religiosity. And look at the threefold description beginning at the end of verse 5. Firstly, in relation to the law, I was a Pharisee numbered among the spiritual elite. Look, folks, you cannot be any more religious than I was. A Pharisee of Pharisees. And then notice, secondly, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Oh, I was like Elijah of old. Elijah at Mount Carmel when he slaughtered the hundreds of prophets of Baal. That was me, a zealot for the Lord God Almighty. Zeal without knowledge. But that is who I was. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law. Blameless. I put my life in the scale. I put my life in the balance, and on this side I placed all of my good deeds, and on this side all of my misdeeds, and oh, the balance fell in my favor, that as I look back on the life I had lived, but one word written over it all, blameless. Look, folks, that is who I was, my ethnicity my religiosity, my entire identity before God. But what happened? He tells us in Romans chapter 7. What happened? He tells us there he was alive, feeling really good about himself. And then the law came alive, and he died. One law in particular, the Tenth Commandment, what is it? You shall not covet. And the Apostle Paul realized that his entire identity, all that he prided himself in, in his ethnic identity and in his religious identity, he had but one great end in view. I want to see my name in lights. That was the Apostle Paul, driven by covetousness, driven by self-love, Riddled with pride. And when that tenth commandment came alive, he saw himself for what he really was. And he turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And now in our text in verse 7, as he looks back on it all, whatever gain I had, I counted as, here's what I now write over it all, dung, I counted as loss for the sake of, of Christ. Oh, do not mistake it. To gain Christ is to look upon all that I was as dung. I was reminded of this in powerful fashion just this past week in the home. There was this book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Have you read that one? by Robert Louis Stevenson. It is a classic. And it's just sort of kicking around the house. It had been years since I read it. Picked it up. The strange case. We all know that phrase. Oh, he's acting like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's actually a book. It's a fascinating book. And in this book, we are introduced to this man, Dr. Jekyll, who is a physician. 
and he is a scientist, and he is an upstanding member of the community, well-respected. But Dr. Jekyll, he, in, he has the secret desires of the flesh and yearnings and cravings. And so he puts his scientific mind to use, and he creates a potion that when he drinks this potion, he transforms into Mr. Hyde. And as Mr. Hyde, he goes off into the darkness of the night, he indulges the flesh, he does whatever he pleases. In the morning, he transforms back into Dr. Jekyll, and no one is the wiser. And this goes on for some time. And finally, Dr. Jekyll, he is troubled by what he gets up to as Mr. Hyde in the dead of the night. And so he vows to never take the potion again. He tears up the, the formula by which he created the potion, he gets rid of it all, and he now dedicates his life to good deeds and to righteousness. And he gives away his wealth, and he begins to minister to his fellow man, and time passes. And on this particular morning, he is sitting on a park bench, and there he is reflecting on the past few months of his life, and he's feeling very self-satisfied. And he begins to compare himself to his fellow man. And he takes stock of what he has given away, of the service he has rendered, and what he has now done. And he begins to feel very self-righteous. And suddenly a shudder comes over him. And he looks down at his hands. And without having taken the potion, he is transformed back into whom? Mr. Hyde. Because you see, we cannot hide what lurks beneath the surface. And whether that which leaks beneath the surface, whether it lends itself and leads to a hedonistic, morally depraved lifestyle, or a life devoted to religious hypocrisy, both flow from the same polluted fountain. It is Mr. Hyde. Either way you slice it up. And Paul, he falls into that second category. We would have looked at the Apostle Paul as, as an upstanding individual. Unbelievably religious. Unbelievably devout. But as Paul himself takes stock of his life and looks back, this is all he can say. Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Oh, to gain Christ is to look upon all that I was as dung. Now, if that troubled you, then the second one's going to trouble you even more. Here it is. To gain Christ is to look upon all that I now am as dung. Stay with me. What does Paul go on to say in the eighth verse? Indeed, he moves from the past tense to the present tense. I count everything, even now. Even now as a Christian, even now as a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, even now as an apostle of Christ, one who has traversed the Eastern Roman Empire, one who has planted churches here, there, and everywhere, one who has been the recipient of divine revelation, the mystery concealed in ages past, but now made known to Paul and the apostles, one who had suffered shipwreck, one who had been beaten and maligned and abused and ridiculed, one who had been so involved in the service of the Lord Jesus, even now, even now indeed, I count everything, all of it, as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That even the Apostle Paul, as he takes stock of his life presently, he writes this one word over it all, dung. Now, steady on here and be very careful. As Christians, is God pleased with our works, our service, our ministry on His behalf? Yes, He is pleased with these things. But He is pleased with these things, sort of like grandpa, grandma, mom, dad. You're pleased when little two-year-old Susie brings you that painting. You know, you've been there or crayons, and she's thrown it together in about 20 minutes, and she brings it to you, and what do you do? You're so pleased with it, and you put it up there on the fridge, and you attach it to the fridge with the magnet, then you hear those words, it's upside down, of course it's upside down, I just want to get every vantage point, what is it? You have absolutely no idea, it's an elephant, tremendous vivid imagination on little Susie, but up it goes on the fridge, and there it stays for years, obligatory, yes, God is pleased with our, us and our works in Christ Jesus, pleased as we are pleased with little Susie's painting, but friends, please do not misunderstand this, and do not mistake it, and do not miss it, when it comes to merit, when it comes to merit, we can be running here, there, and everywhere for the sake of Christ. We can travel halfway around the world and serve as a missionary for 40 years. We can preach a thousand sermons. We can do this. We can do that. We can do the next thing. But in terms of merit, be very clear here, please, write dung over it all. We are not earning anything. We are not scoring any points. We are not gaining God's favor. Oh, look at us now, what we're doing for you, Lord. Aren't you pleased with us? Glad we are on your side. No, the, even the Apostle Paul, when it comes to his standing before God, he looked upon his past, all dung. He looked upon his present, all Dung. And thirdly, to gain Christ, what did he do? He made it clear that he wanted to be found in him alone. And so there are the three. To gain Christ is to look upon all that I was as dung. To gain Christ is to look upon all that I am as dung. And to gain Christ, says Paul, is to be found in him. Look at the middle of verse 8. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, animal entrails, refuse, ding, dung, choose whatever word you like, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We sing a hymn, and one of the stanzas of that hymn is lifted straight from this verse. It goes something like this, when he shall come with trumpet sound. Anyone remember this? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. In him, in his Righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. 
All other ground is sinking sand. This is what it is to see the Lord Jesus. It is to be able to look back on the past and write that word dung over it all. It is even now as Christians to be able to look at everything and just dung in terms of worth, in terms of merit, write dung over it all. And it is simply to plant both feet firmly upon this solid rock. My desire is to be found in Christ alone. Not with a righteousness, as Paul makes it so clear in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, faith alone in Christ. The righteousness from God is the Lord Jesus, His righteousness, His perfect life, His obedience. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Because you see, I make three tremendous stops in my mind. I go over this time and time again. I travel firstly into the garden. I go into Gethsemane. And there I see the Lord Jesus face down on the ground, groveling in the dirt, sweating as it were great drops of blood. And I hear that statement, let this cup pass from me. What is the cup? It is the cup of God's wrath. It is a cup that is full. And what is the cause of this wrath? What is the cause of Christ's torment of soul as He's there crumpled on the ground in Gethsemane? My friend, understand it and get this and get it good. It is you. And it is me. It is our gluttony. It is our immorality. It is our perversion. It is our temper tantrums. It is our selfishness. It is our self-preoccupation. You add, the list is as long as your arm. That which causes Christ such anguish of soul in the garden, it is you and me. And then I follow the Lord Jesus into Pilate's palace. And there he stands before Pilate and all of his accusers. And the accusations, they're coming fast and furious from every side. And he opened not his mouth. Well, it causes me to stand and wonder, have you ever asked yourself, why didn't he respond? Why didn't he say anything? Why didn't he defend himself? Are you ready for the answer? He couldn't. What do you mean he couldn't? It was all true, folks. Any accusation that could have been levied toward the Lord Jesus, any crime that could have been imputed to the Lord Jesus, any sin, any transgression, whatever, that could have been imputed to the Lord Jesus at that moment in time would have been true. Why? Because He stood there as your representative. And He stood there as my representative. That's why He didn't open His mouth. He couldn't open His mouth. It was true, all true. And then I go from the garden to this Pilate's palace to the cross itself. There I see that pulverized flesh suspended between heaven and earth on Calvary's cross. And I see the entire scene enveloped in darkness. And I hear that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to the question, put your name right in there. That's why. Our sin. And oh, as I, as I, as I see this, as it comes alive in the soul, I find myself echoing Ezra's cry from centuries ago, my God, 
I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you. And so what do I do? I stop looking at myself, and I see Jesus. Oh, sir, we would see Jesus. And I see the love of God poured out in Calvary's cross. I see, yes, Christ breathing his last as he has become sin for me, borne the curse for me, drunk the cup of God's wrath in full for me. And what is left for me? It is but to believe. It is but to receive. As I place my faith in the Lord Jesus, and as I place my faith in the Lord Jesus, turning away from everything I was, everything I am, every hope of ever ingratiating myself to God in any capacity, shape, form, size, whatever, I simply look to the Lord Jesus. By faith, I become one with Him. And because one with Him, I am now clothed with what? His righteousness. And now clothed with His righteousness, I am what? Now found in Him. Oh, my friend, that is great gain. There is the surpassing worth and excellence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the Lord Jesus? So to see Him is to gain Him. But secondly, Paul, I think, points us in this direction. To see the Lord Jesus is to know Him. And he tackles this in verses 10 through 11. And look at how he begins the 10th verse then. That I may know Him. And similarly, he now unpacks this basically with three statements. If we want to know what it means to know Jesus, not merely know Him theoretically, not merely read a book about Him and understand Him cognitively, but to know Him, it entails three things. Firstly, to know Him is to know the power of His resurrection. That's the opening statement in verse 10. That I may know Him, I might know Jesus, and the power of His resurrection. is for what Paul says in Galatians 2.20 to really come alive. I have been crucified with Christ. Because you see, when the Lord Jesus died on Calvary's cross, because I am now one with Him through faith, as far as God is concerned, when Christ died, I died. Judicially. I died. I have been crucified with Christ. Ergo, it's no longer I who live not about me, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, how do I live it? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That is to know Jesus. It is to know the power of His resurrection. And it is now to live a resurrected life each and every day. Consider ourselves to be dead men walking. Because as far as God is concerned, legally, judicially, we were crucified with Christ upon Calvary's cross. Not in our persons, He was. We're now one with Him through faith. And so God now reckons it to us, and He commands us to do what each and every day? Just act like it. That's it. There's the doctrine of sanctification in three words. Just act like it. That's the doctrine of sanctification. That is what we are called to do now as believers. We are called to live crucified lives in resurrection power, knit together with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. This is the race we now run. Run. It took me years to understand this. For years, I was running the wrong race. You know, I think back to high school. I used to, oh, this is going back 40 years. I even now, it just seems so unreal to me running track in high school. I struggled to get up the four steps, but I, I used to run the 400 back in high school. And I think it was maybe grade 10, grade 11, uh, the coach said, we need someone to run the 800. And I kind of looked at him and said, well, how difficult can it be? You just run the 400 twice. Sign me up. You don't run the 400 twice 
when you're running the 800. The gun went off. Off I went like a jackrabbit. And I ran the 400 like I always run the 400. What happened on the second lap? Started to cough up a lump. And I ended up near the end of the pack. Why? I was running the wrong race. Christian, are you running the right race? Do you even know what the race is? Do you even know what we're called to? What God's design and plan and purpose is for us. Sum it up so succinctly to simply this, that we'd be like the Lord Jesus. That's it. That we would be conformed to the Lord Jesus. That we would be like Him in His death. Like Him in His life. That we would consider ourselves dead to immorality and gluttony and pride and malice and selfishness and laziness and everything else. Oh, this is what it means to know Jesus. To know Him is to know the power of His resurrection. And secondly, it is, Paul tells us, to share in His sufferings. Pick it up right there, verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, conformed to His death, willing as Christ was so willing for the joy that was set before Him to despise the shame, endure the cross. All why? Because of the prize that was set always before him and in front of him. Oh, that joy which was his eternally in the Father. Well, years ago, Allison and I served as missionaries in, in Portugal. And we never met this brother. We did meet his second wife. Now, the brother's name was Eric Barker. And he was from England. And he had gone out to Portugal as a missionary in the early 1930s. Tough, tough place to minister in those days. Uh, food shortages, lack of basic amenities, and the parish priest ruled with an iron fist. And the situation only got worse in 1939, the outbreak of the Second World War. And he decided to send his wife, six children, his sister and her two or three children back to England to wait out the war. And he bid them farewell at the port in Porto, northern Portugal, as they embarked the ship and off they went. And a few days later on a Sunday morning, he received the, uh, the, dreaded, the dreaded telegram, a ship torpedoed, all lost. He went to the church that he had planted, downtown Porto. It's still there. I've, I, I preached in it years ago. still there to this day, a little brethren assembly. And he went there and he uh, got up into the pulpit on the Sunday morning and said, uh, brothers, sisters, I'd just like to inform you that my loved ones have arrived safely home. Mm. It was only later in the day they realized what he meant by safely home. He was referring to their heavenly home. Did he know dark days and nights ahead? Yes, he did. Did he suffer anguish and torment of soul? He most certainly did. Did he shed an ocean full of tears? Absolutely. But that man, his life was molded, shaped, determined by some very, very basic realities as Paul himself articulates them in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Many of us memorized this verse, I'm sure, when we were kids. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. 
two realities that shape that man's entire outlook. Life, here's how I see life, service for Christ. Death, here's how I see death, presence with Christ. And those two realities shaped his entire perspective. You drop that in right here now in our text, that we may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that in all things, in all circumstances, in all conditions, we might so closely identify with the Lord Jesus Christ that we would have this unshakable certainty that our God orchestrates and plans and devises and governs all things for our good. And although this life might not go very well, it always most certainly ends well. Oh, to know Jesus, to know Him, is to be conformed, to share in His sufferings, and to become him, like Him in His death. And thirdly, to see Jesus is to know Jesus. To know Jesus, right there in verse 11, is to attain the resurrection from the dead. This verse has stumped people at times that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And some have thought, well, Paul seems to be suggesting here that it's still, you know, it's still some uncertainty. Will he attain the resurrection? And it kind of depends on what he does at present. And he seems to be working and doing this, doing that, whatever means that he might attain or earn the resurrection. That's not what he is saying. When he, when he utters that word by any means, he's simply talking about the means by which he dies. He's spoken of martyrdom earlier in the epistle. And his point simply seems to be this, whether I'm martyred or I die in a shipwreck or I die stoned, you know, rocks thrown at my head, or if I die in the middle of the night in the quiet of my bed, whatever means possible, whatever God has in store for me, I know this, I will attain, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This was his great impulse, as he says down in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because you see, the Apostle Paul understands that to know Jesus is to attain the resurrection. To attain the resurrection is to get everything. All that God has promised to bestow and lavish upon His people. Oh, I remember hearing this story a number of times growing up. Now, preachers would often pull this one out, and it, uh, it, Lord spoke to me through it on a number of occasions, and it goes, it goes something like this. There is a, there's a young man in England, and it's just him and his father. They live on this grand estate. His mother has already passed away, no other relatives. Uh, World War I comes, and that young man goes off to France to fight in the trenches, and he befriends another young man there, and over the course of the war, the, uh, the first young man, he's killed in combat in the trenches. But before his death, his friend, who likes to do a little painting, pulled out his brushes and oils and canvas and painted a little portrait of this young man. Less than spectacular. He had to write his name on it just so that people knew who it was. It was not very good at all. But at the end of World War I, that young man traveled back to England and found his friend's father now bereaved of wife, son, and, uh, and just said, here's a little painting of your son. I thought you might, you might like it just to remember him by. 
My father was extremely touched, and he took that little canvas oil painting and placed it on the, just the lintel above his fireplace in his study, and there it stood for decades until he passed away. No family, no friends, uh, no heirs. And so when the lawyer came to the stipulations of the will, it was very simple. Everything was to be sold off. And this, he was a wealthy man, landowner, tremendous art collection, Van Gogh, everything else. And the art experts and collectors came from all over Europe when they heard there was going to be an auction. And there they were gathered in the mansion on this estate, and the auctioneer got up behind the podium and simply said, here is the first item for sale. It is the oil painting of the man's, deceased man's son. Can I get a bid on this? Dead silent, awkward coughing, nobody, people avoiding eye contact, no offers at all. Until suddenly an older gentleman in the back, the gardener, who was a confidant to the man who had passed away, had known the son, sheepishly came forward and said, I have two pounds in my pocket. It's all I have. Is it enough? And the auctioneer sold. You get the painting. Immediately, the lawyer who was sitting over here jumped up, walked over, pushed the auctioneer out of the way and said, the auction is closed. Why? The stipulation of the will is this. Whoever gets the son gets what, folks? Everything. Everything. Maybe not now. Definitely not now. Definitely not tomorrow. Oh, but there's a resurrection coming. To know Jesus is to attain the resurrection. We get everything. Christ is God's. We are Christ's. All things are yours. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Oh, by right now, by privilege then. Oh, to know Him is to attain the resurrection. It's to know the power of His resurrection. It's to share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death. And it is to attain the resurrection from the dead. Oh, one simple statement to conclude it all. You can probably guess what it is. Sir, we would see Jesus. Friends, have you gained Him? And do you know Him? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that by Your Spirit, You might give us eyes to see this day and to behold the wonders of the gospel, the beauty of the Lord Jesus, the severity of our own sin, and the magnitude of Your loving kindness toward us. And when we piece it all together, our Father, we pray that as your people, we might be strengthened in faith and in hope and in love. And for any unbelievers present, we ask you to be gracious and merciful, to convict of sin, to convince of truth, and to overwhelm with the surpassing worth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be brought to a saving knowledge of him. In his name we do pray. Amen.